0: Although I grew up in a British colony, I was never really a royal file. I really just didn't get into the royal family. I didn't understand what all the fuss was about. Uh, But I have enjoyed watching The Crown and the latest uh, uh, season of The Crown has been fascinating to watch, particularly as it begins to approach the years in which I was alive. And uh, I love Olivia Colman as Queen Elizabeth. Really don't know why they chose Helena Bonham Carter as Princess Margaret. Uh, but, you know, it's, I think it's a sign of good acting that you quickly adjust to a completely new cast for the royal family later in their life. Um, there was an episode in this latest season where Prince Philip, uh, the Queen's husband, spearheaded a documentary, a television crew to come and essentially go into the palace, see the life of royals. And the point was to. Uh, help the British public see that the royal family are just regular people, and it was supposed to uh, drum up support for the royal family. Now, Queen Elizabeth didn't stop her husband from doing this. Of course, she had the power to do so if she wanted to. And, uh, but she did say at some point in that episode where she said, really, the monarch, the royal family should be mysterious, should be set apart, shouldn't be seen as just regular people. And really what happened with the documentary is that it went poorly. Uh, The royal family was criticized for trying to seem like regular people when clearly they are not living a regular life. The episode really showed how for a royal family there's this uh, tension, right, of whether they're meant to be this kind of mysterious thing or they should just be regular people like us. And if, I don't know if we have any people who really care about the royal family, but even in recent news, we see news about Prince Harry and Meghan Markle and whether they want to stay with the royal family or not, are they going to live in Canada or America or England or wherever they're going to live. But it just shows the difficulty of being a part of the royal family and I think that's an overwhelming feeling if you watch the show The Crown, it's just it's a difficult thing as much as we might look up to them and I think it's even more fascinating though that what it reveals in us who observe the royal family who aren't royals in any way, uh, we I think ultimately we're not comfortable with people we don't feel like we can relate to And for the royals, on one hand, we want to simultaneously lift them up and worship them as these, I don't know, celebrities, amazing people, and at the very same time, tear them down and demean them. And it's interesting because I think this is exactly the human tendency of what we want to do with God as well. We want to lift up God and worship Him, and at the very next moment, we want to tear Him down and demean God. And I think even for those who just say in general, I think you know the reality is most people recognize that humans are spiritual beings and that there has to be something bigger than us, even if the thing that is bigger than us is the godless universe whose origin and power and future we can never really comprehend. But I think even with the universe... We want to figure it out. We want to understand the thing that is bigger than us to put it in a box so that we can be comfortable with that thing that is bigger than us. But we can't put God in a box. We're going to be looking at this passage today where we're taken up into the throne room of God. It's going to be a weird journey, particularly for us, for those who know the Old Testament For Jews who know it well, there's going to be many familiar Old Testament allusions. We're not so good with our Old Testament, and so it's not very familiar. But even if you were very familiar, it's still a strange scene to be taken up into the heavenly realm, into the throne room of God, and see how that changes our perspective on life. We talked last week about the seven messages to the seven churches and how it calls us as modern readers to evaluate our own walk with God, to evaluate where the church is at, where the Christian church is at, including our very own church, One Ancient Hope. And in today's passage, we are asked to evaluate the most important of questions that you could possibly ask. And this is it. Who or what do you worship? Who for what do you worship? And I think what this passage, these chapters four and five, what they tell us is that God is the lion and the lamb, so let's worship him. God is the lion and the lamb, so let's worship him. These two imageries in scripture teach us, tell us, the very same time that God is transcendent, completely unlike us, and yet the very same time imminent and just like us that he is the conquering lamb and also the sacrificial lamb who was slain for us and calls us to worship. Now, I'm going to, if you have your Bibles, please open them up. If you have a Bible app, open it up. I'm going to go rather quickly through all of chapter 4 and 5. I think one of the tricky things, again, with Revelation is it is quite strange and it's, it's hard for us to grasp. And I'm going to try to uh, bring attention to little details and my hope is that when you go back to it later this week, as you read it for yourself, that you can begin to meditate upon it and, and draw more from it, asking the, asking the Spirit to speak to you um, as you consider it more deeply. So let's, uh, let's go through this. A quick, not a joke, but I joked last week that none of the seven different pictures of eternal life involve an eternal worship service and that for some that might be disappointing and some that might be exciting. But here we are, here we have the eternal worship service uh, in chapters four and five and you'll see uh, that clearly portrayed as we go through it. So chapter four verses one through three, after this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit. And so we see here, at least quickly, again, we saw this in chapter one, this idea of how the message of God was transmitted. It goes from God to Jesus, to angel, to John, and now to us. And so we see a part of that being described here. So at once in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And we have to remember, as we, as we read Revelation, we have to understand that it has this evocative symbolism. Okay, it's, it's not important to see, why is it jasper? What's the meaning of jasper specifically, or carnelian? It's painting a picture for us of the splendor and majesty of God in the throne room of God. There's no particular meaning that we can easily grasp with why there's a rainbow or why it's an appearance of an emerald. It's just trying to describe something otherworldly, something majestic and, and, and splendor that is God's. And he's speaking again, pointing us to the throne room of God that is unlike anything that we know of here. And these visions of throne rooms were quite common in Jewish apocalypses. And even in the scriptures that we have ourselves of the Old Testament, we see uh, visions like this in Ezekiel 1, in First Kings 22, in Isaiah 6, which many will know well, and I'll read it real quick. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and a train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So just in quick reading, you'll see, oh, well, that sounds kind of familiar with what we just read or are about to read as well. And I'm going to say this again. If you didn't hear the first sermon on this series, please go back and listen to it because it really sets up how we're talking about this whole book. But the genre that this book is in is apocalyptic prophecy in the form of a letter. So if you haven't heard me say that before, you're going to hear me say it a lot, because I'm not going to assume you've heard the first sermon. It's an apocalyptic letter in the form of, apocalyptic prophecy in the form of a letter. I'm just going to key in on this word apocalyptic again, because this is really important, because this entering into the throne room is a really good example of what it means to be apocalyptic. To be apocalyptic means it's a genre of books that takes us to a perspective of the heavens, a perspective of the end of the story, the end times. And when we begin to see things from a heavenly perspective, from a future looking back perspective, how will that change the way we live now? How will it change the way we live presently in our life? And so as we're taken up into the throne room of God right here in Revelation 4, the same thing is asked of us. How does seeing the throne room of God change the way we live now? And what we see here, this emphasis on the throne of God, the throne room of God, is that we are told through this that God's sovereignty and faith in God's sovereignty is the true reality over all things. And this very simple, basic truth in Scripture is something that every day we wrestle with, whether it's believing it or having trust and faith in that reality. Is God really in control? There's a lot of stuff happening that, uh, I don't know if God is really in control of that. And the thing is, there are things of this world, powers of this world, that try to take the place of God being the one who's in control to tell us the lie that, no, God's not in control. This other thing is in control. This government is in control. This cultural philosophy is in control, not God himself. And as we're taken into the heavenly realm it's to tell us the reality is God is the one who is over all things. God is the one who is in control. But let's keep going. There's so much more to go. In the next section, verses 4, um, we'll see verses 4 on. We're going to see the throne of God surrounded by 24 elders and four creatures. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments, <laughs> with golden crowns on their heads. There's a lot of imagery, a meaning that come with numbers in Revelation 24. Here is supposed to represent the 12 tribes in the Old Testament, 12 tribes of Israel, and the 12 apostles, and therefore representing the unity of the church from the Old Testament into the New Testament age. And these 12 elders here in this throne room of God are angelic beings who rule over the heavenly realm And they they show us that, again, this otherworldly picture of the throne room of God. But let's keep going. Verse 5, from the throne room came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And again, we see the splendor and majesty and power of God described. Um, And would be very familiar to Jewish readers of this sounds like God revealing himself at Mount Sinai. And it continues, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Seven again, the number of completion in Scripture and in Revelation specifically, and often and what you see throughout Revelation is when you hear the seven spirits of God, it's just John's way of saying the Holy Spirit. Okay, so he's saying the Holy Spirit is coming out of the throne. Verse six, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. The sea of glass is important in that, again, the picture that scripture describes, and don't take it too metaphysically, is that heavens are above and earth is below. God is the one who reigns on the throne in heaven uh, along with these 24 elders, angelic beings, and below is the earth. And God right now is, is ruler over the heavenly realms, yet he is seated on his throne. And the sea of glass is the thing that separates the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. And so it, this is the picture being painted, the throne room of God that sits above our heavenly realm. Again, don't take it too metaphysically. It's painting a picture for us of God who is in control over all things and yet distinct and separate from the broken earth that we live in. And so it continues. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. The number four in Revelation generally references earthly things. And so these four creatures transcend and yet at the same time represent all of creation. And it's interesting because these descriptions of these four creatures are a combination of the seraphim and the cherubim kind of rolled into one being. And so if you have read scriptures, and we did just read one, Isaiah, uh, that contained images of the seraphim, these creatures, again, are a combination between seraphim and cherubim. Now it's interesting, if we just step back for a moment to see what has been told us so far about the throne room of God. The throne room of God, maybe this is obvious to say, is a drastically God-centered place. Everything emanates out from the throne. Man is not center of this place. God is center of this place. And not only is man not center, man is barely mentioned. The only reference to man is his presence in the face of one of the creatures. And it points us to this truth that the true reality is a reality where God is at the center of all things, not man and this again very simple truth is what we fight against as humans in so many different ways we want to make man the center of things and we can dress it up in all kinds of philosophies and religions but we want to put man in the center we want to put ourselves in the center rather than put god in the center of all reality and our lives themselves Notice also, God is really not described. And we should take note from the fact that God is not described. What is described is the throne room of God, is what is happening in the throne room of God, the beings that worship God in the throne room of God. Yet very little is described of what does God look like? Maybe we're curious. Okay, you keep talking about the throne, John, but what does God look like? But God is too transcendent, too mysterious, too unlike us to be described. So John is trying to get across the holiness, the power of God without taking that step, and I guess in a very Jewish way, not describing God, to demean God by trying to describe him, and yet trying to get across who God is, characteristics of God. And so we continue... Verse 8, we see now moving to these four creatures, what they're doing. The four creatures, they worship God. Verse 8, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Again, this is very familiar, right? Just from this passage we read in Isaiah 6, the words that the seraphim spoke before the throne of God. And yet, the refrain here is slightly different. We get the holy, holy, holy phrase, and yet it's substituted with who was and is and is to come, which is a refrain that happens throughout Scripture describing God as being the one who exists from all eternity. And yet, this we talked about in the first sermon, the one who is to come is this sense of the one who comes to engage into our lives. He is not just transcendent and distant, but very much the God who is engaged with our lives. And yet these four creatures, the key thing to see here is that they worship God, never cease to worship God. And what you will begin to see as we continue on through this text is we have the throne of God. We have the four creatures around the throne worshiping God. And now we're gonna move out to the 24 thrones and elders around these uh, the throne and the four creatures. So verse nine And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. As I said, these 24 elders are the angelic, are angelic beatings that are ruling over the heavenly realm on God's behalf. And they represent, transcend, and yet represent all of creation. And so you note in, the, in, in what they're saying in praise to God is specifically how he is the one who has created all things. He is the one who sustains all things. God is the center of all being, of all existence. He created all things sustains and upholds all things. But notice, yes, they have this incredible role in ruling over the heavenly realm on behalf of God, and yet they too worship God. And when they worship God, they step off their thrones and they lay their crowns down and they worship God. And it reminds us of this very simple truth that all authority, even these amazing angelic elders, all authority is dependent on God's authority. It comes from God himself. It is derivative of God. And so if we are ones with any kind of authority, we hold it in stewardship to God. He is the one who has given us that responsibility to rule or to have authority over others. And so we've seen so far this expanding, if you will, concentric circles out from the throne of worship to God And yet we're going to take a slight turn on this focus to to Jesus. And yet we'll continue to see this pattern going on. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This basic gist we get here is of this, this uh, scroll that it's so sacred that no one is worthy to open it. And so probably the most obvious question to ask is what? does this scroll contain? Why is this scroll important? And the scroll is meant to symbolize the plans of God, the redemptive plans of God that are yet to be executed, that, that someone must not just open the scroll, the importance of not, not opening it, is to carry out God's purposes in this world. And the key here is saying that there's no one seemingly worthy to carry out the plans of God to execute his salvation and judgment over all the earth. And this idea of the sealed with the seven seals is is meant to portray the, the sacredness and the importance of the scroll and the plans of God in it. And we're pointed to this truth. Only Jesus, the Lion of Judah, is the one who is worthy to open those scrolls to carry out, execute these final stages of God's redemptive act in this world. And yet it makes a quick turn. We get this imagery of the line of Judah, which in the Old Testament is this this picture of strength and power, right? And yet it makes a very quick turn in verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, which represent power, and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, which shows that... That, that this lamb's knowledge extends throughout all the earth. And it says, He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Now, we, when we looked in the throne room of God, we saw the transcendence of God, the otherworldly of, otherworldliness of God portrayed in full effect. And again, that God the Father sitting in the heavenly realm on the throne of God Distinct, separate from the brokenness of this world. And even this picture of Lion of Judah kind of points us more to that transcendent nature of God. And yet this turn to the lamb that was slain gives us this picture of a God who comes into this world to lay down his life for his people. This quote from Richard Baucom, a theologian, I think is maybe a sermon in itself, but he's trying to describe again how God the Father is described as being so distinct and holy and separate from this world. But then it says that, he says this, but if God is not present in the world as the one who sits on the throne, he is present as the lamb who conquers by suffering. Christ's suffering witness and sacrificial death are in fact, as we shall see, the key event in God's conquest of evil and establishment of his kingdom on earth. Even more than the judgments which issue from the throne in heaven, they constitute God's rule on earth. Moreover, Christ's presence, like walking among the lampstands in chapter 1, with his people continue his witness and sacrifice is also God's presence. This is so important. Sometimes we struggle with feeling like, yes, God is so holy and unlike us how can we possibly relate to such a God? When we get a picture of the divine throne room of God, how can we dare approach this almighty holy God? And we're given the answer. The Lion of Judah is also the lamb who was slain. The Lion of Judah is the lamb of God. He is worthy. And I can't even get into this, but again and again in Revelation, God, uh, Jesus as God is affirmed again and again. He is the one who is worthy. He is God himself and therefore worthy to carry out the plans of God on earth. And we see now the result of seeing in this divine throne room the Lamb of God who was slain for all humanity. What the response is. Verse 8, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. This is why I chose the Messiah Creed for us to read today, as opposed to the Apostles Creed that we normally read, to remember that we are people of every tribe, nation, brought together by the Lamb that was slain. We want this message of Jesus to continue to go forth to all the earth. Verse 11, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The worship of God has gone from the four transcendent creatures to the 24 angelic beings now to thousands and thousands of angels crying out, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And yet it doesn't stop there. Verse 13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Every creature in heaven and on earth, everything that is created now worships God. So we see from the throne room of God emanating out in circles, the worship of God for every living thing. That is what this picture of the throne room of God calls us to. If God was only transcendent in the line of Judah, we may not dare approach the throne room of God. But we dare because he was the lamb that was slain. He is not just holy and separate. He is the one who has come to be close to us, to draw near to us. God is the Lion and the Lamb, so let's worship him. We have to understand that Revelation was written in context. And the context for Revelation is the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire at the time, right? And if you know your history, even just a little bit, Incredibly powerful global superpower. And the Roman Empire sold itself as a religious state. And in this way, it claimed the power of God for itself. Don't worship God, worship the Roman Empire. Worship Caesar, who brings wealth and prosperity and peace. Rome claimed the sovereignty of God, the power of God, claim the power to be the one who brings peace and prosperity and security and safety, Rome tries to take the throne of God. We have to even think, you know, this, if you've heard of this term, the Pax Ramona, it is this idea of the, the peace which Rome brought, which sounds great, and there was peace, and God even used the Pax Romana for Christianity to spread far and wide. But it's easy then, when a superpower is so powerful and they're selling peace and security and wealth, to forget that Rome conquered nation after nation with violence and oppression, and managed to figure out a thing called Pax Ramona to keep everyone under their thumb. And the challenge of revelation is not just, "Hey, Rome is this oppressor persecutor? Like, God will set you free the main message of Revelation to us who hear this or the original readers is, don't you know you are complicit in the Roman system? You have bought Rome's promise of power, security, prosperity, safety, security. You have become complicit in the Roman system of oppression and violence. And we can all be subject to this temptation, to see that something of this world promises us peace and prosperity and salvation. And we say, yes, that sounds great. Please, give me some of that. And we try to ignore questions of, what does that make us complicit in? What have we willingly become a part of for the sake of these false promises? for us as believers, we are reminded by the throne room of God Only God can be God. Only God can deliver on his promises. We don't have a superpower like Rome today. Our country is pretty powerful. Ethnically, I come from a country, China, that's pretty powerful right now. And you could just think of either as an example. What do those countries or systems promise us? What are we willing to give allegiance to instead of on top of God in order to receive whatever promises that country or that system promises us? The world is certainly becoming smaller and smaller through globalization, through technology, through ease of travel. And then we see this weird tension in our world of some people wanting a world order to bring it all together, and some saying, well, no, forget that. Let's just hunker in as a country. I want to deal with all the other stuff out there. Had enough of that. You know, and there's smarter people to talk foreign policy and politics than I do. But we are reminded by revelation that whatever you think are the right policies, God is the sovereign ruler. God is the one who's in control over all things. God is the only one worthy of our worship. And the throne room of God calls us to that, points us to Jesus, who is the lion and the lamb, who is the God that is on one hand completely separate, mysterious, transcendent from us, and yet at the same time can dwell with us, draw near to us. We're not very comfortable with God's transcendence. It's a bit scary. The throne room of God sounds a bit weird and scary, but we must believe in a God who has at least some mystery. How can he not be mysterious to us? Think of the ocean, something so familiar, so close to us, maybe not in Iowa, but you know what I mean. We know a lot about the ocean and there's far more that we don't know about the ocean. And that is what it is to worship a transcendent God. We can know him. We can truly know him. And yet there we're never going to figure him out we're never going to figure out all the mystery that is contained within the ocean that is god yet we can know him very truly because he comes near to us through the lamb that was slain god's transcendence that we see in the throne room is his distinction from us as his created as his creation Distinction does not mean distance from us. God's transcendence is mystery, not him being mean to us. He is the transcendent one, but also the imminent one. He is the lion of Judah, but also the lamb of God. He is the one who sits on the throne, who at this very same time lays down his life for us so that we can know him, relate to him forever and ever God is distinctly unlike us, and yet the very same time can be known by us through Jesus. I encourage you. I know it's probably very big, but I didn't know how to bring it down to very specific applications, but the the call of this passage is very simply this, to ask you, who or what do you worship? What are your allegiances to in this life? Is it truly the God who sits on the throne, who has laid down his life for you? Or is it something else? And if you're like me, it's always a mix. We say we are first and foremost loyal to God, and yet our lives show that we are allegiant to many other things that contradict our loyalty to God. And that's the journey of a Christian. This passage calls us to worship Him truly, along with the four creatures and the twenty-four elders, and all of thousands of angels and everything on earth, to worship the God who is Lion and Lamb. Worship Him with all of your life. Love Him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. He is the Lion and the Lamb, and worthy of your worship. Let's pray.